Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Nir Shafir. And I'm Ella Fratantuono. Today we have with us James Meyer from Montana State University. Uh, James has just completed a new book. It's called Turks Across Empires, Marketing Muslim Identity in the Russian-Ottoman Borderlands. It just came out with Oxford University Press. Um, and today he's going to be talking to us about these Muslims who are moving uh, from the Russian Empire, from Kazan, from the Caucasus, from other places, to the Ottoman Empire, sometimes moving back and forth, um, and how this mobility and other uh, how this mobility and their interest in politics and so forth uh, is expressed both across the Russian and the Ottoman Empire uh, in the press and in politics. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks a lot. Um, well, the uh, and thank you both for for having me. It's it's much appreciated. So, uh, sorry, can you just give it? I mean, give us an overview of you know who are these people? Uh, what did you want to try to get across in your book? Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. a quick short of. Sure, sure. So uh, this book tells the story of the Pan Turkists, and um, by which I'm I'm talking about uh, Yusuf Akhtra, Ahmed Aoulu, uh, and I'm also talking about Ismail Gasprinsky, uh, who didn't actually end up moving to the Ottoman Empire, but uh, who is somebody who's generally associated with Pan Turkism as well. And you know, traditionally, the Pan Turkists have been seen as these uh, you know intellectuals who are known mostly for their ideas and arguments and their their published articles. And um, you know, they're they're not really seen as individuals who are presented as individuals who have a lot in common with the communities uh, in which they live. They seem, in fact, you know, uh, when reading about them, you can get the impression that they're really sort of isolated from the communities in which they lived. And so, you know, it can kind of seem, well, you know, why write about these people? It's it's just a, a handful of people, and what connection do they have with, with their era? But, you know, when I was working on them, and, you know, really only about probably... 40% of my book is directly on the Pan-Turkists, by which I mean Akhtra, Gasprinsky, and Aulu, but also their circles of activists and writers uh, in Russia and the Ottoman Empire. Only about 40% of the book is on those individuals. Most of the book is about uh, these broader Muslim communities uh, in central Russia, in the Crimea, uh, in the Southern Caucasus, which is where Akhtra, Gasprinsky, and Aulu are from, more generally, but also this broader Muslim population that is traveling between Russia and the Ottoman Empire at this time, which is something that the Pan-Turkists uh, were also uh, involved with. So, you know, basically, uh, the book uh, has three uh, broad themes. One is mobility, uh, one is revolution, and one is the uh, politicization of civilizational identity. And um, what I'm looking at is how uh, these three individuals, Akhtra, Gasprinsky, and Aulu, uh, how they how they were grounded uh, in the era in, in which they lived, uh, how their lives and, and careers uh, reflected um, the, uh, the issues and, and challenges uh, facing uh, the communities uh, in which they lived uh, during uh, this time in, in history, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So what are these communities that these people represent? What are the times... Uh, and movements that these uh, that these men came from. Can you kind of give us some more examples? Can you just uh, draw out an outline of these people? The three communities uh, within Russia that I'm looking at most of all are the community, the Muslim communities of the three regions uh, from which the three individuals at the core of my book are from. So. Yusuf Akhtra, he was from Central Russia. Uh, Ismail Gasprinsky, he was from the Crimea. Ahmed Aolo, uh, he was from the Southern Caucasus. And all three of these individuals also traveled uh, between Russia and the Ottoman Empire. And there was a broader population of Muslims, uh, whom I call trans-imperial Muslims in the book, who likewise traveled between Russia and the Ottoman Empire. So um, by using these three individuals from three different 
Muslim inhabited regions of the Russian Empire. Um, first of all, I'm I'm trying to make some broader arguments uh, about the nature of relations between Muslim communities and the Tsarist state uh, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So I I draw. Uh, certain comparisons between, say, uh, Yusuf Akhtra and the Muslim population of central Russia more generally. Uh, I draw certain comparisons between Ismail Gasprinsky and the Muslim population of the Crimea more generally, uh, Ahmed Aoulu and the Muslim population of the Caucasus more generally, and then all three of these individuals and and I, I place them within the context of Muslim populations traveling between Russia and the Ottoman Empire more generally. So what were some of the... Re- I mean, why did people travel? Why did, why did they see Istanbul as a, you know, as a place to come to? Or is it... I mean, is it just Istanbul? Is it other places in the empire? Mm-hmm. Did they mm-hmm. go back to Russia? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, was it a back and forth or is it a one-way migration? Okay. Well, it depends on who we're talking about. So um, I begin... Uh, with a, uh, a discussion of what I call trans-imperial Muslims more generally. Uh, and so that's sort of the, the first chapter of my book. And it, it's based upon uh, an, ar- an article that I published in IJMES uh, several years ago. And so at first I'm looking at uh, Muslims, Muslims of whom none of us have ever heard of, uh, uh, who were traveling between Russia and the Ottoman Empire. And they did so uh, for a lot of different reasons. And a lot of people went back and forth. Um, what, what prompted me uh, initially with respect to the question of human mobility uh, to look at this question is that usually, um, you know, when I started off writing about this, you know, usually when, when people had talked about Muslims uh, from Russia and ending up in the Ottoman Empire, Turkey, that's something that's generally been described in terms of a one-way trajectory. You know, people came from, from Russia, uh, then they became Ottomans, then they became Turks. And that's sort of the general story uh, about you know, uh, Muslims arriving uh, in in the Ottoman Empire in Turkey. Uh, But I'd found uh, when I was working in the archives in in both Istanbul and in in various parts of Russia, that a lot of people went back uh, and a lot of people traveled back and forth. Um, And the reason for that had to do with um, some of the peculiarities uh, relating to subjecthood uh, in Russia and in the Ottoman Empire. Um, it was really difficult for people to renounce their Russian subjecthood. Uh, you, you had to, uh, in order to do it officially, uh, you had to travel to a district capital. Uh, you had to deal with um, czarist uh, bureaucrats. Uh, you had to pay money. Uh, and it was really easy to just leave the Russian Empire uh, unofficially. Um, so there, there really wasn't... Uh, a large benefit to an individual who wanted to go to the Ottoman Empire either temporarily or permanently, there really wasn't much benefit to vetting that and getting official permission beforehand. Um, People would just leave. And so when they arrived in the Ottoman Empire, it was relatively easy for Muslims uh, to receive uh, Ottoman uh, residence papers and then eventually Ottoman subjecthood. So what happened is a lot of Muslims in particular uh, would become de facto dual subjects. They never renounced their Russian subjecthood. They would be given Ottoman subjecthood, but then um, some people would go back. uh, And then even people who never would go back, uh, Muslims living in the Ottoman Empire, if they got uh, conscripted or got arrested or ended up, you know, in some sort of trouble, uh, I found that a lot of these people would end up uh, invoking their Russian subjecthood and saying, hey, you can't do this. I'm a, I'm a Russian subject, uh, despite the fact that maybe they had been living in the Ottoman Empire for decades at that point. Sometimes even their children would invoke Russian subjecthood based upon their parents' Russian subjecthood. So, um, you know, at, at first I was working on that, and then, you know, I, I kind of realized, well, these pan-Turkists, people like Akhtra or, or Aulu or others, they were doing the exact same thing. 
uh, Yusuf Akhtar, for example, when, when he was a child uh, growing up in Russia, his father died and he and his mother uh, emigrated to the Ottoman Empire and they moved to Aksaray. Uh, and then Akhtra ends up uh, studying at the war college here and uh, gets in trouble during the Hamidian era uh, because he was involved in some sort of, you know, uh, intellectual discussion circle and, and he ends up getting arrested exiled to Libya. Uh, he's in Libya for a few years, ends up escaping from Libya, moving to Paris. Uh, he studies at the Sorbonne because he's, he's maintained connections with his relatives in Russia who were financing his education in Paris. And then when he finished his education in Paris, well, he couldn't come back to the Ottoman Empire. He was a deserter. Uh, Abdul Hamid was still in power. Uh, so where does he go? He goes back to Russia because Akhtar's mother had never renounced uh, her subjecthood. So this is one way uh, in which I, I, I place uh, the, the pan-Turkists in a, in a broader context of uh, what other Muslims in Russia and the Ottoman Empire, in this case, people traveling between the two empires, uh, were, were doing at the time. So it was very much, in many cases, uh, a, a back and, and forth movement. And it was something that I found interesting, uh, given the fact that you know the Pan-Turkists are often seen as you know, sort of the the architects of Turkish nationalism or of a, a future Turkish state. But these individuals, much like many other Muslims at the time, whose names we we don't necessarily know. Were trying to survive. They were they were going where where they could go, um, and pursuing the opportunities that were available to them. And what I found uh, during the course of my research was that for 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 Muslims from Russia, for many Muslims, not just you know a handful of intellectuals, but also for a much broader population, uh, there were possibilities on both sides of the imperial frontier. And so people would go back and forth as opportunities arose for them. You mentioned pan-Turkism. Can you just give us, you know, what is pan-Turkism? Why why were these people interested in it? Mm. You know, Mm. are you, are you saying that because they were mobile across empires, because mm. they moved around, mm. that they started viewing the world as, let's say, a pan-Turkist, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, from a pan-Turkist viewpoint. Uh, and what were the other options of worldviews that they could take on? The individuals that, that I work on um, have traditionally been described as pan-Turkists, but mainly that's because uh, they talked about a broader uh, Turkic world uh, after moving to uh, Istanbul during the uh, Unionist period. So, you know, at different times, 1908, 1909, 1911, uh, various uh, Muslim activists uh, from Russia moved from Russia uh, to Istanbul. And, uh, you know, mainly the reason they did that was, um, you know, there had been a revolution in Russia in 1905 that had given uh, a lot of these Muslim activists an opportunity. They had been involved in politics, they had been involved in a bunch of different projects, not including pan-Turkism. Pan-Turkism was something that ended up becoming ascribed to them after they moved to Istanbul during the, the Young Turk period. Um and so what, what I'm doing in, in this book is uh, deconstructing this notion of these individuals as, as pan-Turkists. I refer to them as pan-Turkists because that's how they're known. But really, um, the book is about the pan-Turkists before pan-Turkism to a large extent. Only uh, the final chapter of the book... Uh, has these individuals in Istanbul where they're involved in in a variety of of activities. So um, what what I'm trying to do is, you know, traditionally people have understood pan-Turkism to mean some kind of, you know, idea of bringing all the Turkic populations of the world together. That's not something that they were interested in. These people were not fools. They, they, They did not think that you know, an idea like that was at all feasible, uh, you know, at the time, I mean, the Ottoman empire was in no position to, to attempt any sort of plan or, or program like that. Instead, what they were doing, uh, during the young Turk period was invoking a Turkic identity. Uh, but as I argue in my book, 
um, people like Akhtra and Aolu were doing this, you know, as a, as a way of um, gaining uh, readers uh, in the Ottoman Empire, but hanging on to their readers in the Russian Empire. Because these individuals, uh, like much broader populations of Muslims traveling between the two empires at this time, uh, were similarly not closing the door on Russia after arriving in the Ottoman Empire. So, you know, I I identify these individuals as pan-Turkists, but, you know, the Turkic world was just one of many different worlds that that these individuals were were interested in. Um, You know, I mean, when they were in Russia, they were mostly interested in very concrete, uh, political developments. Um, identity was was not something that was particularly important to them. They only become much more interested in identity uh, projects after they move to Istanbul because that's really that's all that is left for them. Um, they 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 come to Istanbul as guests of the CUP. Uh, they're not in a position to engage in active uh, activism and politics of the sort that they were involved with when when they were in Russia. Um, they they basically become insiders. Uh, they had been outsiders and opposition figures when they were in Russia. Um, they're insiders uh, when they're in Istanbul um, because they're either members of or friendly with uh, the unionists. Um, so they, they've largely become defanged by the time they, they arrive in, in Istanbul. And so they start talking about identity. Um, but even that is, is more of a, uh, as I describe it in my book, um, something that has more to do with their careers and writing and uh, the opening of uh, a Turkic language uh, publishing market in Russia and the Ottoman Empire to some extent uh, in uh, Iran as well, um, rather than with any uh, specific plan or, or plot to you know create some Turkic state uh, combining all the the Turkic peoples in the world. So, you know, for them, pan-Turkism was a career move rather than a a political ideology. Okay, so just speaking about the careers, you mentioned a few of these people are, Mm -hmm. you know, they're interested in readers or involved in publishing. Mm -hmm. Uh, How many of these people were people of the press? Like, how many of them were writers? What The people, the the larger figures you look at. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. What's their connection to the press and to writing and so forth? Akhtra Gasprinsky and Aulu, as well as the, the broader circle of activists uh, that they knew uh, when they were in Russia, um, were all main involved in politics and community organization in Russia. There was a, a constitutional revolution in 1905. And, you know, for a while in Russia, it, it seemed like there were real possibilities for change. And that's what they were interested in. And so uh, they, they all uh, had their newspapers and were publishing. Uh, but, you know, again... Um, Publishing newspapers for them, that, that was a means to an end. Uh, they weren't, you know, they were invoking uh, the communities in which they lived, but they were doing so uh, as a means of forwarding uh, very specific uh, political platforms. Um, and indeed, one, one of the arguments that, that I make in, in, in my book is that the people who would later uh, become known as pan-Turkists uh, were in fact very much um, establishment people. Uh, in Russia. Uh, Gasprinsky and Aulu both came from the lower gentry in Russia. Uh, Akhtra did not come from the gentry, but he also came. Uh, in central Russia, uh, his family uh, was very well known. It was a very powerful, uh, well-known, wealthy family in Russia. Um, these three individuals, as, as well as, you know, most of the, of the Muslims who were actively involved in, in politics in Russia after 1905, came from families that had a lot to lose uh, if, if uh, you know, if, if, if things ended up going the wrong way. Um, and so 
one thing that I found quite interesting is whereas, you know, Muslim political movements in Russia after 1905 are, are generally described in terms of like, you know, anti-Russian or anti-Tsarist in one way or another, you know, in many cases, all of their concerns related to uh, clarifying and improving uh, connections between Muslim communities and the Tsarist state. They were not separatists. Uh, they were not pan-Turkists. Uh, they, they were not, you know, uh, anti-Russian or, or anti-Tsarist. They were seeking to lead Muslim communities and facilitate connections between Muslim communities and the Tsarist state. Uh, it's only after... Uh, kind of the window of opportunity for parliamentarianism and constitutionalism closes in Russia in 1907, and then a new window opens in the Ottoman Empire in 1908 that they start thinking, well, and they, they see a lot of their friends uh, start getting arrested and exiled in Russia. Uh, there's a counter coup in Russia in 1907. That, that people start thinking, well, hey, it might be a good idea to get out of here and go to, go to Istanbul, where there's a regime that's going to be more friendly to us, and, and they, they, they head over there. I wonder if you could talk a bit more about sort of, um, you say they sort of cut their teeth in this uh, Russian political context. So I'm wondering, mm -hmm. um, what avenues were there for their sort of political involvement? How were they uh, involved in political parties? Um, Sort of what were what was at stake both within Muslim communities and in their relationship to the Russian state, both before and after 1905. Mm -hmm. So. Um you know, before 1905, Ismail Gusprinsky had been publishing his newspaper in the Crimea, but, you know, it wasn't, uh, you know, there, there wasn't very much in that newspaper that could be construed in any way as overtly political. Um, you know, there was very little opportunity for any kind of overt politics in Russia of any kind prior to 1905. But um, with the, the revolution, um, a lot of opportunities emerged, and including opportunities for, you know, some Someone like Akhtra or, or Gasprinsky or, or Aulu, people who, who had uh, certain skills that a lot of other Muslims in Russia did not have. For one thing, um, you know, knowing, uh, knowing other languages uh, uh, like Russian uh, or French uh, through which they could communicate with, with Russians and be a part of the political process. Uh, Yusuf Akhtra, for example, um, you know, the so-called father of pan-Turkism or the father of Turkish nationalism, as he's described, Yusuf Akhtra led the negotiations between the Muslim political party, Ittifak, and uh, the Russian political party, the Constitutional Democrats, in forming an electoral alliance uh, in 1905 and 1906. Um, uh, a lot of the the individuals with which uh, with whom the the pan Turkists or the future pan Turkists were associated in Russia, you know, they too uh, found themselves giving opp given opportunities to uh, to speak in the name of the people to lead Muslim communities that wouldn't have been available to them uh, before 1905. So 1905 in Russia uh, gave uh, these Muslim activists uh, a lot of opportunities um, to to write, uh, to be involved in politics, um, to even in some cases. Uh, negotiate on behalf of Muslim communities with Tsarist authorities. Ahmed Aoulou, for example, took part in these uh, three-way negotiations between Muslims, Armenians, and Tsarist authorities uh, when there were efforts to bring an end to Muslim-Armenian fighting uh, in the Southern Caucasus in, in 1905. You know, these were individuals who were outsiders in Russia, but they were desperately trying to become insiders, to be recognized by Tsarist authorities and Muslim communities alike as uh, spokesmen or uh, leaders of Muslim communities. So, you know, pan-Turkism was not something that any of these individuals were talking about while they were in Russia. That's something that really only comes up after they come to the Ottoman Empire. And Politics in the, the form that, that they had been associated with in Russia is no longer much of an option for them. Once they arrive in the Ottoman Empire, once they settle down in Istanbul and they start 
becoming involved again in uh, newspapers and presses, you know, what opportunities did they seize upon? Were they, as you mentioned, that they weren't able really to be involved in like CUP politics or to be very critical of the government at all? Mm. So, and that they seem to have turned towards identity. Mm. Um, did they find that disappointing? Did they want, was that what they expected to find in the Ottoman Empire? Well, I think it, it depends on the individual. So uh, Ahmed Aoulou, for example, I mean, he uh, he joined the CUP and he was in the, the Ottoman parliament. Uh, he had a family. Uh, he had, I think, four children. Uh, you know, he was given a job upon his uh, arrival uh, in the Ottoman Empire in 1909. Uh, so for him, you know, I mean, he was uh, he was you know, he was given a position. Um, I mean, and they were all, you know, given a position and a sanctuary in, in Istanbul. So, you know, I think they were, they were all, you know, definitely glad to be here. Um, you know, I should point out, uh, it's, it's Yusuf Akhtar and Ahmed Aoulou who end up moving to Istanbul, uh, after the CUP revolution in 1908. Uh, Ismail Gasprinsky stayed, uh, in the Crimea. He stayed in Russia, although he visited Istanbul frequently. He was organizing uh, a World Muslim Congress. He was traveling to, to Egypt and to, to India at this time. Um, you know, they were, they were doing what large numbers of Muslims traveling between Russia and the Ottoman Empire had been doing for years at that point. They were following the opportunities wherever they arose. And so for these individuals, the opportunities were coming to an end, at least the sorts of opportunities that they were interested in. Um, they could no longer really uh, keep a, a public profile in Russia. Politics was getting shut down in Russia. And more importantly, you know, parliamentarianism and constitutionalism seemed to be coming to an end in Russia. Whereas they, they looked at the Ottoman Empire in 1908 and they thought, all right, well, this is the next great hope uh, for, for Muslims and parliamentarianism and constitutionalism. And that's what they were mainly interested in. Um, they, they wouldn't have been interested in opposition politics in the CUP because generally they supported the CUP. But their lives changed, you know. So whereas in Russia, Akhtar and Aulu and, and Gasprinsky were all very critical of the government and they were involved, you know, in, in, in politics in a very real way, organizing things, taking part in meetings, you know, very much sort of ground level stuff. Uh, in Istanbul, they were you know, guests of the government. They were insiders. They were supporters of the CUP. So they weren't, you know, they were involved in politics, but in a very different way from the way in which they'd been involved in, in politics uh, in Russia. So, you know, any criticism they might have had of the CUP was not something that they were going to talk about publicly. Um, so we know this book is about more than just these three individuals. And um, uh, a way you set that up is to think about trans-imperial Muslims, trans-imperial space. And I guess I'm wondering if you could just sort of um, define that term for us a little bit more. What is unique to what's going on um, between the Ottoman Empire and the Russian Empire? How does this differ from sort of some other uh, catchwords we've been hearing recently, transnationalism or cosmopolitanism. So who are trans-imperial Muslims and how does that framework help move your narrative forward? Hmm. Thanks. That's a great question. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm interested fundamentally with uh, Muslims who are traveling back and forth between Russia and the Ottoman Empire. Um, and because of... Uh, the different ways in which the Russian government and the Ottoman government understood uh, the concept of subjecthood, there were opportunities for Muslims um, to travel back and forth, including the people who would later go on to be known as uh, pan-Turkists. So, you know, I know um, in some cases people have used the term uh, globalization to describe uh, the late imperial era. I don't use this term because... What I'm interested in is mainly one region, um, a region spanning between Russia and the Ottoman Empire and to a much lesser extent, Iran. Um, this isn't something uh, that involves the entire globe. Um, 
the reason I don't use transnational is, you know, we're talking about a pre-national era, so it seems uh, anachronistic. I use the term uh, trans-imperial, so first of all, um, because uh, I'm describing people who are crossing imperial borders, but um, more importantly, because uh, what facilitated this border crossing and what made it easier for these individuals to, you know, move back and forth or go back to Russia after they'd been living in the Ottoman Empire, uh, had to do specifically with the imperial nature of the states in which they were living. So, you know, this is a time when, uh, you know, the people who were managing empires, whether it's Russia or the Ottoman Empire, the Habsburg Empire, what have you, uh, saw the, the, the strength of their state in terms of size. They straw, saw the strength of their state in terms of uh, larger populations. And uh, they couldn't necessarily be very picky about what types of populations lived in their states. So um, this is why it was possible uh, for Muslims who had left Russia and gone to the Ottoman Empire to go back to Russia. Uh, czarist figures, uh, czarist administrators didn't necessarily love Muslims and, and want Muslims specifically to be in Russia, but it was better than no one. You know, they, they needed people to grow food and, um, you know, do the, the work of empire building. They, they needed uh, these, these individuals. So, you know, they would let them come back. Um, you know, there, there were many cases of uh, czarist officials. You know, they knew these people had been living for Russia in, in, in the Ottoman Empire. I'm not talking about pan-Turkists. I'm talking about broader populations of Muslims. But depending on where these people were from, if they were from central Russia or from the Crimea, um, they were, Russian officials were very happy to have these uh, people coming back. Um, the Pan-Turkists were part of this broader population of, of Muslims from Russia who were able to take advantage of the desire uh, among officials in both Russia and the Ottoman Empire for human resources uh, to have people. So that's why I use the term trans-imperial, um, because you know, it's not just a question of crossing imperial borders, it's a question of taking advantage of specifically imperial circumstances um, that really kind of come to an end uh, once the age of empires come to an end and the Soviet Union and the Republic of Turkey are created. And then just to follow up to that, so we have sort of the the ending of this this mobility. Do you think um, trans imperial Muslims is a framework that you would feel comfortable extending back into um, the 18th century, the 17th century? Is is it still a useful framework for previous eras? It can be, um, but there were also um, kind of some specific developments um, regarding the era that I work on, which. Um, was largely an era of peace. Um, you know, the, the, the time between the, the Russian-Ottoman War of 1878 and World War I, uh, that was the longest era of peace between Russia and the Ottoman Empire uh, for hundreds of years. Um, so, I mean, while relations between Russia and the Ottoman Empire were not great during the Hamidian era, um, at the same time, the, the sort of battles... Uh, they weren't that took place between the two empires at that time. They weren't actual battles. Um, they were more bureaucratic battles, diplomatic battles, uh, and there's a lot of wrangling going on between uh, Russian and Ottoman officials uh, during this time over who has the authority over these uh, Russian Muslims who are traveling back and forth uh, between the two empires. So, you know, I wouldn't say no. This isn't something that can be used for earlier time. It only has to do with uh, the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century. At the same time, um, I, I think that there were certain developments regarding travel, regarding communication, regarding, you know, uh, a less... Uh, 
you know, a, a lower level of, of, of actual conflict between the, the two empires. If we take it back to 1856, you know, there's, there's one war that lasts a year and a half between 1856 and 1914, and that's it. And so in Russian Ottoman terms, it's a relatively peaceful time, you know, so there were certain aspects relating to this era that really facilitated uh, mobility uh, between the two empires and specifically among Muslims. Just to pose the same question, but for a different time period, mm. uh, you know, does the trans-imperial framework, you know, is our current time period a time of more mobility, uh, you know, following the breakdown of the Cold War, the resumption of exchange between uh, Russia, uh, Central Asia, and uh, let's say Turkey and the Caucasus, this increased mobility, it, you know, is it, can we gain any lessons or insights uh, of the, our current period from this period, from the period that you study? Yeah, I think so. Um, indeed, uh, as I, I argue in the, the introduction, the conclusion of the book, there are a lot of similarities between um, our present age, uh, which I describe as the, the post-Cold War era, you know, basically from 1990 onwards, uh, and the late imperial era. I mean, really the book... Uh, you know, it's a, it's a story of the Pan-Turkists, but it's about three themes. One is mobility, uh, one is revolution, and the other is the politicization of uh, civilizational identity, by which I'm referring mainly to like religious and national identity. So, um, I mean, uh, first of all, with respect to um, mobility, yeah, with the breakdown of the Cold War and the breakup of the Soviet Union, uh, mobility between the former USSR and Turkey and elsewhere in the Middle East has increased dramatically. Uh, Secondly, with respect to revolutions. So I'm working on an era of a wave of revolutions, 1905 in Russia, 1906 in Iran, 1908 in the Ottoman Empire. the post-Cold War era was ushered in by a wave of revolutions. And since then, we've seen waves of revolutions and the, the color revolutions in the former USSR, the Arab Spring, um, which are features that we did not see uh, during the, the Cold War. Um, and thirdly, with respect, respect to the uh, politicization of identity, of a tendency uh, these days, uh, to view political conflict in terms of civilizational difference, religious difference, national difference. Um, you know, this was also uh, a feature of the late imperial era uh, that we didn't really see to the same extent during the the Cold War, or you know, for 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 much of the the you know the the, the period um, uh, prior to uh, the era that we're we're living in right now. So. Um, you know, whereas you know, I mean, the, the the book is about the the late imperial era, but you know, at the um, you know, I I, I wrote it with uh, the present day in mind um, and thinking about what we can learn today um, from the late imperial era, what uh, the story of the Pan Turkists uh, can can teach us today, and you know, mainly I think it comes down to this. Um, when people invoke uh, civilizational identity, when they invoke uh, religion or, or nationalism in their political programs, we have to look beyond that and look at the concrete interests uh, that people are pursuing in doing these things. Um, the Pan-Turkists are known as you know, early nationalist heroes, uh, as architects of you know, the Turkish Republic that is to come. Um, you know, we need to look beyond uh, their rhetoric. We need to look beyond the supposed arguments and ideas that we see in their published writings and look at them as individuals, not see them as like these unique intellectuals, but see them in terms of what they had in common with uh, the people and the states uh, around which they lived. Um, So, uh, you know, I I think that that has uh, a lot to tell us uh, today because, 
you know, when we, when we look at what's going on in the world today, you know, uh, all of these, you know, political movements and, and conflicts are being fought in the name of, uh, you know, certain religious or, or national differences. We need to look beyond that uh, and not take that stuff at face value. Uh, similarly with the Pan-Turkists, uh, we, we can't take what they were writing at face value. We need to look at their lives and see what they were actually involved in, what was motivating these invocations of identity. Um, this seems like a good time to transition into a question about sources and how you go about writing about three um, activist intellectuals without writing um, a purely intellectual history, so to speak. So could you walk us through some of the, the archives you went to and the sources you uncovered? Mm-hmm. And also, you know, what is it? How do you, if you're doing a trans-imperial history, mm. what kind of archive sources are you using? How do you get at that that mobility of people mm-hmm. and ideas? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, it involves uh, traveling a lot, and um, I was I was really lucky uh, to uh, very fortunate in getting uh, getting the support. Um, Grants so that I could do a lot of research, not only in Istanbul, uh, but also in uh, in other places. So I, uh, you know, I I, I I spent a lot of time researching uh, in Kazan, in in Russia, uh, in the Crimea, in Baku. Uh, I was also uh, doing some research in uh, Georgia in the archives in uh, Tbilisi. Uh, I also spent some time in Moscow and St. Petersburg. And, you know, really what I was interested in doing um, was uh, in, in kind of getting beyond uh, the published articles that, that these individuals wrote. I mean, the, the vast majority of work that's been published on, on say, Yusuf Akhtar or Ahmed Aoulou, uh before my book was, you know, uh, publications from Istanbul. So, First of all, when I was a graduate student, I was interested in going over to the former USSR and looking at their published writings in Russia or in you know the Southern Caucasus or or what have you. But then um, you know I also did a lot of work in the state archives, and I found a lot of information not only on the future Pan-Turkists but also just on Muslim communities uh, more generally. Um, you know. Uh, less than half of the book is specifically about you know individuals who are known as intellectuals most of the book is actually about uh, these broader communities uh, both in Russia and between Russia uh, and the Ottoman Empire um, some of the sources that that proved most useful um, were uh, personal correspondence when uh, when I was in Kazan um, I, I found uh, a large number of letters that uh, were written by Yusuf Akhtra to his friend and uh, editor uh, Fatih Karimi uh, which were uh, located in uh, a special uh, part of the archive that was devoted to Fatih Karimi, Yusuf Akhtar's name wasn't at all on the uh, uh, in this uh, archive's name, uh, this part of the archive's name. Um, but, you know, I kind of stumbled across them. And these were, were letters, you wrote a, about 70, 75 letters that um, were uh, written mostly between uh, 1908 and 1913, uh, which gave me a lot of insights into uh, Akhtar's life uh, in Istanbul during, during those years. Um, and then, you know, just uh, working in the, uh, in, the, in the state archives as well in various parts of, of the former USSR just really gave me uh, a pretty good sense of the the larger relations between Muslim communities and the Tsarist state. You know, when I when I first went to Russia uh, to do research uh, in 2002. You know, I, I remember going into the archives and saying, uh, "I'm interested in Pan-Turkism. What have you got?" And you know, there was very little. Um, you know, I found official police reports on what was what they considered to be pan-Turkism. You know, what what czarist police, you know, in 1910 considered to be uh, pan-Turkism. But 
I, that really didn't give me uh, a, a lot of insight uh, into you know what the broader set of relations were between Muslims and and Tsarist officials uh, uh, in Russia. You know, it was only when I kind of stopped uh, trying to impose a particular vision upon the archives, and instead, uh, you know, just tried to listen to what the archives were telling me, and um, I was able to do that. Um, because uh, I was able to receive funding um, to, to spend enough time in, in various parts of, of the former USSR to, to get a, a better sense of the, the lay of the land uh, in the archives and you know, get a better idea of what some of the bigger issues uh, were between Muslims and, and the state. And... Um, you know, I mean, and it varied from from one region to another. Uh, you know, so in uh, you know in central Russia, you know the the czarist state loomed a lot larger in the minds of not only elites, you know, like Yusuf Akhtra, but also uh, Muslim peasants living in the area as well. Um, in the Crimea, uh, mobility vis-a-vis the the Ottoman Empire was a much bigger issue, not only in the mind of Ismail Gasprinsky, but also in terms of, you know, ordinary Muslims who are traveling back and forth between the two states. Uh, And in the Caucasus, the location of uh, Muslims on the imperial frontier with Iran and the Ottoman Empire was similarly, you know, something that affected not only the life and career of Ahmed Awalu, but also just large numbers of, of Muslims whose names, you know, we don't know or hadn't heard of. Um, So, you know, by turning away and not, you know, making this book only about pan-Turkism, but rather about pan-Turkists and looking at how these future pan-Turkists kind of what they had in common with larger populations of Muslims in terms of their their political concerns, uh, how they live their lives, um, their ability to move back and forth between empires. Um, you know, I felt that I was able to produce something that tells us a lot more about the late imperial era in this part of the world than I would had I written some narrow story about the ideas and arguments of a handful of intellectuals. Instead, I'm trying to use those intellectuals as a means of telling a broader story about the era. So on that note, um, just I'm looking at your book in front of me, and it, you know the title is Turks Across Empires, Marketing Muslim Identity in the Russian-Ottoman Borderlands. And so here you have basically uh, the, first, the first part of the title, Turks, and then the second part, Muslims. Mm. Uh, and here, and you were just mentioning this kind of this notion of uh, the creation of Muslim identity and so forth. And kind of what what's the relationship here between, let's say, Turkish identity or whatever pan-Turkist identity or whatever, mm-hmm. however you want to make it, and what you often use is this notion of Muslim identity. How do you how did they interact? How did they uh, build off each other or not, or where did they collide? That's a great question. Thanks. So uh, the title, uh, it's a little bit facetious, Turks Across Empires, because in fact, you know, sort of what I'm arguing is that, you know, Akhtra and Aulu and, and the others, you know, only really began presenting themselves as Turks rather late in their career. Um, but, uh, as I, as I kind of discuss uh, later on in the book, uh, the term Turks of Cross Empires also refers to uh, people living uh, in the Turkish Republic today, people who self-identify as Turks in the Turkish Republic today, um, you know, a, an enormous uh, proportion of whom. Uh, can trace uh, their family backgrounds either to Russia or to the Balkans or to some place outside the current borders of the Republic of Turkey. So kind of what I'm arguing is that, you know, a, a lot of the people that we see as Turks living in Turkey today are, in fact, uh, Turks across empires, too. Um, but, uh you know, the, the term Turk uh, was not an operative uh, concept, even for the pan-Turkists, really, until they came uh, to Istanbul after the, the 1908 uh, revolution. Um, for the most part, you know, I mean, by 
they uh, chose to identify themselves in terms of whatever kind of identity uh, would work for them at the time. So back when they were involved in politics in Russia in 1905, it wouldn't have made any sense to describe themselves as Turks because most Muslims in Russia did not see themselves as Turks. They saw themselves as Muslims. And so if you're trying to create you know, a viable you know, political movement and appeal to people uh, on a certain basis. Muslim is a much more winning uh, concept than Turk. So they describe themselves as Muslims. Um, when they came uh, to Istanbul, uh, suddenly calling themselves Turks made a lot more sense because they were involved in publishing ventures in the Turkic language and they were trying to appeal to readers uh, both in Russia uh, and in the Ottoman Empire. And they were really uh, pioneers uh, in uh, Turkic language uh, publishing, you know, at a time when, you know, it wasn't really clear, you know, what sort of direction, you know, the Turkic language uh, would go. I mean, in the, in the Arabic script, it was fairly easy to read uh, for an educated person in, in Baku or Crimea, uh, to a lesser extent in Kazan, but also in Kazan, you you know, to, to read Ottoman Turkish and the, the sorts of uh, publishing ventures that these individuals were involved with once they came to Istanbul were written in a certain way that they could be read by educated people uh, in, you know, what are uh, a variety of, of countries today. So, you know, a big part of the book is how know, invocations of identity, of calling oneself uh, by certain terms, calling others in, in certain terms, um, how those invocations of identity uh, pass back and forth. And so, you know, I look a lot at how, uh, you know, Islam and, you know, even Sharia and like Muslim, you know, how those terms are used by, you know, a variety of Muslims in Russia, not just intellectual activists, but also, you know, just ordinary Muslims who are petitioning the state. And I also look at how, uh, you know, czarist officials, um, orientalist scholars, uh, journalists, bureaucrats in Russia are using these terms as well. And, you know, and how the use of these terms, how the invocation of these terms, you know, pass from, from one group to another, how they become a discourse that's used between groups and, you know, play an important role in, in power relations. And then, you know, as they, as they move over to, uh, to, to Istanbul, you know, instead of Muslim, the term Turk is, is used in various ways. But, you know, um, you know, the Turkic identity is invoked by, you know, Akhtra and Aulu and others in Istanbul, but also back in Russia, they're, they're using these terms as well. Uh, government officials are, are using these terms as well. Um, Orientalist scholars are, are, are invoking, you know, the threat of pan-Turkism as a means to get funding from the government. Um, and, you know, these are, are, are all concepts, I, I think, that are very germane uh, to what's going on in the world today. You know, you look at the, uh, you know, the growth of like terrorist sub uh, studies or, you know, uh, you know, uh, or, or people, you know, who are, are invoking, you know, the, the caliphate, you know, whether they're members of the Islamic State or whether they're, you know, pundits on Fox News in the United States who have their own, uh, you know, very practical reasons reasons for invoking these forms of identity, you know, these are, are stories that, that I see, you know, as having many parallels, uh, you know, between uh, the, the era that we're living in right now and the decades preceding the First World War. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you very much uh, for having me. It's been a pleasure. Uh, for, those of, for those listeners that are interested in finding out more, we recommend that you first go to uh, Jim's book, Turks Across Empire, Marketing Muslim Identity in the Russian Ottoman Borderlands, which again just came out on Oxford University Press. And uh, I might might also mention that uh, the introduction uh, to the book is available for free on the uh, website of Oxford University Press. Uh, I've also published uh, a couple of excerpts uh, from the book uh, on my blog, Jim Meyer's Borderlands. Uh, so that's another place where people could find uh, information about it. And uh, you can also go to the Ottoman History Podcast uh, website where James... Um 
will provide a very short bibliography for us in case you need to have any more information.